Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hi, James. Good to be here with you. I'm here with James Hughes in this uh, next episode of the Ethics series that we're doing here on Buddhist Geeks. And we're here to have a conversation to explore um, a variety of topics that I thought James would be uh, particularly fun to explore with. So uh, thank you again for for taking the time to, to chat with me. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. And it's been, I mean, it's been what, like uh, five or six, maybe more years since we last spoke mm-hmm. in this context. So right. uh, good to have you back on the show. You were one of our kind of early guests, as I recall, you know, maybe, maybe even in the hundreds uh, <laughs> in terms of the podcast, which now we're almost in the 400s. So that's uh, quite a while ago. Right. No, I, I have followed you since then and before. Yeah, really good to, uh, to be chatting again. So, um, you know, with this series on ethics, um, you know, we have a focus for a series of conversations. And then also, um, we've really shifted the format um, from interview style to conversation style, um, which, of course, doesn't mean I don't have lots of questions uh, that I'm curious about to ask you, but it does mean it's going to be a little more of like a back and forth and a little more of a kind of unscripted exploration of some of these topics. Sure. Um, so I, I was wondering if I could kick it off by uh, kind of throwing out something that really stuck with me the last time we spoke. And I think it, it it's maybe it's one doorway into the conversation about ethics. Um, and you use the term uh, wage slavery <laughs> when we last spoke. Mm-hmm. And this is really interesting because I, I, I've also, in the, just recently in the last year or so, started to really kind of notice that economically, the way that our system is structured, um, you know, 50%, I think I recently saw 50% of people in America are living month to month. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. And so the fear of losing one's job um, and the structures in place that, sort of require that everyone have a job and 50% of whom can't lose their job, otherwise they're facing dire economic consequences, really does put us in a position where there is a type of uh, hyper-dependency on that system. And, there, you know, slavery is a strong word, but in this context, I think it's, it's probably accurate. Um, so anyway, I just want to start looking at the systems level maybe and just talk about, you know, uh, the system that we find ourselves in and, and um, the ethics of that. So, you know, just a little bit of, of my own history. Um, when I became politically conscious as a teenager, um, I pretty quickly started to gravitate towards the, the utopian end of left politics. And maybe that was because I was a science fiction fan. I was also a Buddhist from my teenage years and interested in some kind of hybridization of Buddhism and, and uh, social justice politics. There are a lot of things contributing, but one of the ideas that has been around for a long time on the utopian end of the left is the idea that we would someday be free from work, that we'd be able to get machines to do everything that needs to be done and figure out some other way to get us ourselves fed than having to depend on a, on a, a wage. 
Um, and that idea has come back around. Uh, it's come back around a number of times, and, and unfortunately, um, technology never really uh, vanquished work in quite the way that we imagined in the past. But it's come back around now because artificial intelligence seems to be suggesting a, a future in which we probably won't have uh, at least as much work as we have now and maybe eventually none to do at all uh, because machines will do it all better. And that doesn't mean that we won't have occupations, I don't think. I mean, I think we'll all have things that we want to do and probably will be able to exchange some of the things that we do with each other and and there'll still be property and so forth. But um, the idea of naming it as wage slavery, which is an old uh, left term, um, is to say this is a, a kind of liberation that we want. We want to be liberated from the necessity to work for a wage. Um, and the way to do that is to have a universal basic income guarantee. And just the same way that we create social rights around the right to health care, the right to education, a right to a basic living wage as a human being should be part of the current progressive agenda. And, and it's a pretty radical uh, ask in the United States because the social welfare system has been under attack at least you know since the Reagan era, um, and and it, and the people attacking it just get more and more extreme. I mean, Ted Cruz talking about wanting to get rid of the IRS, and, you know, which would cripple the fiscal capacity of the state and so forth. But um, but I think we also see the pushback, and and part of the reason that we're seeing the kind of extreme pushback of, of the in the forms of Sanders and Trump is that increasing numbers of people are feeling precarious. And in sociology, we're talking now about, instead of the proletariat, the precariat, the people who feel this pervasive sense of precarious, economic precariousness. And um, and I think that that is going to destabilize our politics and hopefully create an opening for the kinds of changes we need. Okay, interesting. This, this idea of a universal basic income, um, you know, it's it's one that I've really became most aware of, I think, from a kind of techno progressive circles. And, you know, it's one that um, it's been around for a long time. But it's also one that now the folks who are creating some of these technologies and some of these platforms that essentially are are eating jobs, you know, algorithmically eating jobs, are also coming around to seeing that maybe this is necessary. Um, you know, I, I saw recently was it the uh, Y Combinator? You know, the the sort of famous Silicon Valley uh, incubator, business incubators wanting to test out uh, basic incomes. And so that that's an interesting idea that seems to have a lot of uh, support from a lot of different sectors, not just from one. It's a, a fascinating. Uh, response to that the whole idea of wage slavery well it has had supporters of various kinds on left and right i mean the right, right uh, libertarian right for a long time has been anxious about the kind of nanny state and the number of um of public workers that are dependent on uh, the micromanaging of social welfare benefits and they would have long preferred the idea that oh, if we're going to transfer wealth from the rich to the poor we don't need all these nanny state social welfare people in, in between, why don't we just give everybody a check and be done with it? And and so they see it as a way to shrink the state and, they, and uh, to get out of people's hair, you know, not to have to prove that you're looking for work or give given food stamps to make sure that you're not going to spend it on booze. Um, and so there's that kind of appeal. And um, 
And, and so people like Milton Friedman in the past have actually supported an idea of a negative income tax, which is another version of this. Um, but it has been traditionally an idea on the left, and it would require some kind of redistribution. But the, yeah, it's interesting. The tech supporters now, the Silicon Valley techs, some of them I think are quite sincere that they look forward to a future in which they are successful in doing what they're trying to do with technology and nobody has a job anymore. And they're worried about how everybody's going to survive. Others, I think, uh, see this as a kind of bone, you know, that, that they're not terribly serious about it yet. Um, they don't really understand what it would take. Um, and and it's certainly true that we could have right, right wing and left wing versions of the basic income. If we just took all the current redistributive money that's in the state right now and gave it to everybody, it'd be like five grand a person per year. So it wouldn't be enough. And we would really have to have a, a very steep progressive tax in order to make a, a decent um, basic income guarantee for everyone. Okay, so if any, I'm, I'm just I'm going to step back for a second and say if anyone's you know listening to this and going, wait a second, am I listening to Buddhist geeks or is this something else? <laughs> you know, um, I just want to say the reason I wanted to jump right into these kind of conversations is because I mean when we talk about ethics, you know, at least for me, like these questions about systems and about you know the the systems we're embedded in and and the ways that we create and design and, and ask these systems to change is so, in some ways it's so much more important in a way than, um, than just talking about like the state of mind that we're in or, um, you know, just focusing on our personal morality, I guess. And, and that brings up another question, which, which we've, we've been exploring in this season about, um, you know, the relationship between morality and ethics um, I believe when we talked last, you mentioned because you're you know an ethics professor, I think um, that there are like these three kind of uh, traditionally these three approaches to to ethics. One's called uh, deontological, another is virtue ethics, and then a third one called consequentialism. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of maybe get into and explore some of those distinctions and and see if we can kind of um, move toward. Uh, tying together the personal and the, the systemic, you know, in some way of, of seeing the, the interrelationship there. Um, sure. Well, so I was raised a Unitarian and um, uh, Unitarianism is kind of like um, religiosity or spirituality filtered through an enlightenment sieve. Um, and one of the things that Unitarians reject out of hand is the idea that there are absolute rights and wrongs. And this, the, the kind of deconstructive uh, influence of the Enlightenment, the Western Enlightenment, was to say, how do you know that anything is absolutely right and wrong? So deontology is the, the idea that you could just tell that something was right and wrong. And there have been people within the Western Enlightenment tradition, like Kant, who thought if you thought about things the right way, you'd come up with the absolute right and wrong. But, but generally, the Enlightenment has been deconstructive of that idea. And what has become more popular in the West is what we call utilitarianism, uh, which is, or consequentialism, which is the notion that you, what's right and wrong can be determined from its consequences. Um, how many people, what's the greatest good for the greatest number? How many people does it make happy? Those kinds of consequences. And the third tradition that you mentioned is the virtue ethics. And that's the traditional religious ethics other than absolute rights and wrongs. So, you know, the, the Ten Commandments is absolute rights and wrongs. Virtue ethics is 
you know, avoid vice and be a good person. And if sometimes being a good person means that you have to break a rule, well, that's part of life. And so virtue ethics is based on kind of character and intention as opposed to consequences. Now, when I was a young and relatively naive Buddhist and lefty, I, th- uh, I thought that, uh, that virtue ethics was um, basically conservative, like deontology. Um, and it's principally in the West, its defenders have been religious ethicists, like Catholics. Um, and uh, utilitarianism really is more or less the only way to think about public policy, because you, know, you can't if you, if you try to implement virtue or deontology as public policy, then you end up with, uh, you know, the Taliban and <laughs> the, the virtue police of, of Iran and so forth. So, you know, utilitarianism is a basic argument for democracy, that if we all have a, a big discussion, we can figure out what's the greatest good for all of us. What I began to realize after I wrote Citizen Cyborg, which was basically an argument that Philosophically, uh, we you could start from the proposition that we should all have control of our individual and collective lives, and that if we had more control, both through technology and through democracy, we would all be happier. And so it was a kind of consequentialist argument for both social democracy and for transhumanism, for having control over your genes and your brain and, and your reproduction. And what I began to interrogate after that, and should have interrogated a long time before as a Buddhist um, uh, practitioner and philosopher um, was what the heck am I talking about happiness or you know <laughs> what is this happiness that I'm I'm proposing and Damien Keown and I who is one of the leading uh, Buddhist ethicists and now passed away uh, but he and I have had this debate 20 years ago briefly when we wrote an essay together on Buddhist bioethics and I was staunchly defending Buddhism as a form of utilitarianism because hey look Bodhisattvas have to uh, reduce suffering for all sentient beings, so that's that's consequentialism. And bodhisattvas can kill people if they need to, so that's obviously consequentialism. Um, and you have to really kind of stand on your head and blind yourself in both eyes to not see that Buddhism has a huge virtue component, <laughs> right, sitting right in the middle of it, as well as some deontology. I mean, karma is basically a deontological argument. You start with the ineluctable laws of the universe. That's that's deontology. Then you try to figure out how are you going to make yourself happy in a sophisticated way instead of a simple-minded hedonistic way. And that leads you on the full path and eventually you uh, liberate yourself from the illusion of suffering. And then you get to working for the benefit of all beings, but only after you've really done some you know, serious purification. Um, and so it, it, it combines all three of these Western philosophical traditions, but the virtue part is right there in the center. So when I started to work on my, my current book project, Cyborg Buddha, um, I really began to veer away from this simple-minded um, hedonic utilitarianism and towards a more sophisticated, hopefully more sophisticated version of virtue ethics. But there still are, you, you can still have consequentialism around virtue and people like Amartya Sen and uh, Martha Nussbaum have worked on um, how to imagine addressing public policy in a way that you could say, how do we maximize everyone's capacity to have a sophisticated good life instead of just like happiness? Because you know, one of the problems from a transhumanist point of view is that if you try to maximize happiness, you just give everybody a pill, make them all happy. They can all be lying in the gutter. <laughs> you know, so if you want to just maximize happiness, you just you know put a wire in everybody's head and, and you're done. Uh, that's obviously not the good life. So you know we have to have a sophisticated notion of what the good life is, what it, what kinds of virtues, what kinds of character 
uh, future human beings we hope future human beings have, and then we can have a public policy discussion around how do we create the conditions for that, which of course brings me back to universal basic income, but many other things as well. Okay, interesting. So, you know, from here, I, I, you know, one thing that comes to mind, and it's sort of embedded even in the notion of uh, in the language of universal basic income is this idea that like in, in some ways to operate ethically, we have to uncover certain universal um, uh, truths might be the wrong word, but um, uh, recognize certain universal patterns or, um, you know, see what is common amongst many people in order to make, you know, policy suggestions or in order to create systems that optimize for certain things or encourage certain things. Um, and that's one of the things that's kind of interesting about, or at least for me has been interesting about exploring Dharma is, you know, first starting off with this notion that there is this thing called enlightenment or awakening. Um, you know, that, that's where my own practice started. And then the idea of like, okay, if this thing exists and it is universal and singular, you know, as in like everyone is trying to go for the same thing, then there must be a path or even maybe several paths to getting it. And now it's just a question of like how to find that path and do it, um, you know, which makes it very practical. But then, you know, what I found even as I've gone along that, you know, through that process is I, I have discovered things that I would call, you know, certain kinds of awakenings and experiences and changes. But then I always inevitably also found them to be limiting and not completely universal and very you know, specific to the practices and the traditions and the ideas and the teachers that I'd worked with and my own conceptions. And then I found, you know, oh, wow, wow, there's something bigger actually out there. And, you know, uh, every time that's happened, I felt like in my own practice, uh, this sort of uh, dropping away of what I thought was a universal ideal and a kind of recognition of like a new open space of multiplicity and possibility and I wonder if, you know, the same thing, it seems like the same thing applies, you know, when we talk about ethics and talk about, you know, finding a way of, of living or, or trying to design ways of living. You know, in some ways, all we have are our ideals. Um, and they, I mean, they may be beautiful and good, but they don't necessarily apply to everyone all the time. So how do you deal with that? You know, how do you think about that issue of of like the the paradox of universality and 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 like and particularness? You know how um, you know we can come up with a policy that's like good for a lot of people, but it might be terrible for a small number of people. It might be like the like they, it's their dystopic reality to be living under that policy. Well, that is a huge issue, and what what you're pointing to is what I've already referenced as one of the deconstructive things about the Enlightenment is the declining sense that we actually can have a, a, a firm bedrock for universal morality. There are still people making that argument, of course, um, from an enlightenment point of view, people like Sam Harris, you know, who argues that uh, if you just look around you, you can see you know, you know, the social democracies with freedom and equality for everyone and women you know, having freedom and gay people having freedom. Those are the societies that are the happiest, the healthiest, et cetera. Okay, but you, you know, the Taliban don't accept that because they look at those societies and they are horrified and they don't want to live under those kinds of conditions. Um, and so it isn't self-evident to everyone. And you have to have a, a, a pre, you have to have, you know, impose something on reality to say this is yes. right and this is wrong. And that's a Buddhist deconstruction as well. I mean, that's, the, that's you know the Buddha when he touches the ground and everything turns to diamond and 
you know, that's him saying, look, you know, from one perspective, the Prashna perspective is there is no good and bad. Everything's just fine the way it is. And that, and that means genocide, and that means torture, and that means everything is just the fine way it is. But from another perspective, there's suffering. And what we have to do is open our hearts to our own suffering and the suffering of others and try to help everyone to get past that suffering. And that's, that's the central conundrum, that's the central paradox of Buddhism is how you can hold both of those things as true at the same time and, and work on that project. Um, so... Uh, in terms of the Western tradition, I, I, I've always held this in, in terms of, you know, I, I'm an advocate for enlightenment values. I'm an ad, advocate for uh, certain isms. And I know at the same time that the only reason I am an advocate for those isms and those traditions and those values is because I was raised in a certain time in a certain place. My ancestors would have thought that those were crazy ideas. My descendants will think that these are crazy ideas. <laughs> but that's the best I got. You know, we all have to work with what we got. And when I'm looking around, I agree with Sam Harris. It does seem like you know, these are the best societies. I can't make his argument that it's a universal truth. But I can certainly make the argument that it's the best we got and I'm willing to fight for it. And I think, you know, that's holding your beliefs lightly enough so that you don't then become a crazy person and want to kill people uh, because of your of the arguments that you're advocating for. That is both a Buddhist and an enlightenment aspect of how to be wise in the holding of your values, right? That you have to be humble enough about your own lack of true fundamental understanding of the universe so that you don't then say, because we have to defend liberal democracy, I'm ready to start killing X, Y, and Z. Yeah, this is, you know, uh, I was hanging out with, um, several years ago, I was hanging out with a, a teacher named Ken McLeod, and he, he asked me an interesting question, which relates to what you're saying. I figured I'd share it, which is, you know, in, in today, you know, today's world, you know, in, in the culture we live in, the, you know, the situation we're in right now, this moment, uh, what ideas are there? What values or what, what, what things would you, uh, die for? He asked that question. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting question because on the one hand, like you there is this sort of feeling at least that I have where we're so hyper aware of all the possible visions for how, you know, what the good life is, you know, what it means to live a good life. And we see alternatives playing out in different countries. And we see ones that are, you know, from our point of view, are clearly like, you know, you're talking about the Taliban or ISIS or something. It's like clearly those visions have serious problems in terms of, you know, very specific and obvious ways. Um, and, and, you know, from, from an ethical standpoint. And, and, and yet, you know, what is it that we're willing to actually... Uh, to die for, like, where do we, where do we put our stake in the ground and say, this is the most important thing? Because it, it seems to me like wherever that is, you know, wherever we put that stake in the ground, we, we are sort of revealing our current, um, both, you know, we are sort of making a courageous stand. And at the same time, we are also revealing like our current, um, delusional, uh, notion of like what real you know what reality is that like you said your ancestors will look back and think oh that was crazy that they you know that they thought that was the most important thing right um so it's, it's interesting paradoxes in there and uh 
um, and they, they seem like big ethical ones. Too. So, so part of the, the Cyborg Buddha project has been to create a, a structure for a dialogue between social neuroscience, virtue ideas and theories, um, and uh, our enhancement debate. So when I first started the project, it was, it was mostly about um, how we could use technology for meditation and you know, whether taking Ritalin helps you meditate and things, those kinds of questions. But quickly, there, there has been over the last 10 years this growing debate about moral enhancement and whether we should give people um, uh, drugs like uh, oxytocin to make them nicer, um, you know, whether cognitive enhancement actually makes people more moral and so forth. I think the general idea behind the moral enhancement debate is that none of us are as strong uh, in our will as we would like to be, to be as moral as we would like to be. So and the way it relates, for instance, to this political thing is um, I think it's great to have a commitment to um, not being dogmatic and to being open-minded and, and all of that, which is part of the value commitment of the Enlightenment. But there's very little evidence that any of us um, making who, even those who, who have those commitments, not <laughs> to mention those who don't, but those of us who try to be open-minded, that we can be open-minded. In other words, we, we all suffer from these huge cognitive biases um, of selective attention, ignoring uh, contrary opinions, tribal thinking, and so forth. And, and so if we really uh, are committed to these uh, virtue, the virtue of fairness or the virtue of open-mindedness, um, then we probably need a little help um, because humans 1.0 are really well designed to do that. And the same thing can be said about being as nice as we want to be, as compassionate, being as intelligent as we want to be, being as much in self-control as we want to be. Um, and, you know, if you look at the Buddhist tradition, the Abhidhamma has all these, you know, so a third of the, of the Buddhist corpus and um, the Abhidhamma has all these prescriptions about if you're a person who's, a, you know, attached to, you know, sweet foods, then do this meditation. And if you like, you know, uh, internet porn, then do this meditation. Um, and so, I didn't see that in the Abhidhamma. <laughs> I mean, the Abhidhamma, the, 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 the sutras and the, the Tropitaka is a crazy, crazy text. But, you know, there's, there's prescriptions in there about... Can I have sex with monkeys? No, no sex with monkeys. How about dead people? No, no dead people. So eventually they would have gotten around to the internet porn. But, um, but the, the point I was making about the Abhidharma is that it's, it recognizes that we have different faults, you know, that each of us are born with a, a brain that's broken in different ways and so that we have different things that we could do. But what they could prescribe then is different from what we can prescribe now. And so the question is, how can we combine the this tradition, the mindfulness tradition, the, the moral tradition of Buddhism, with the neuroscience and neurotechnologies that we have today in the optimal way. Great, great. And so, yeah, so this is this is so interesting because on the one hand, I I totally, I totally also believe that that's important. You know, to how do, how can we how can we utilize what we have to to um, to be better at what we find is most important. And then at the same time, I just just know from, and this is the one thing I think is really revealing about meditation practice, you know, uh, mindfulness practice, where you're really, you know, questioning the nature of your own phenomenal experience and the nature of your own identity. It's like, you know, there there is a kind of ongoing recognition that oh, it's not what I thought it was. Like oh, I thought I was that subject, but really that subject is a pattern that's arising, you know, in in awareness or whatever. And, then, and now suddenly that I'm aware of it, I no longer am identified with it. And now who am I? 
You know, now I'm, I'm something that can, you know, be aware of that. Um, and so it seems like there's a similar thing where it's like we have to, we, almost like another type of paradox where we're trying to optimize things, you know, use the tools we have. You know, I was just looking up before we got on this call, looking up various tools to block out, you know, certain kinds of social media while I'm working. You know, it's like I want to optimize for you know, when I'm working to be able to focus on a single thing instead of, you know, constantly going to Facebook and seeing what's going on with my, you know, with my people. And on the other hand, though, that, that it seems like even to say we're going to optimize for something, there's an operating system behind that, like an ethical operating system that sometimes we're not even aware of, right? I mean, that's the weird thing. It's that most of our ethics seem to be metaphysics. Like we don't actually know what our ethics are oftentimes. Like there's an operating system, a part of which is invisible and it's driving our decisions and we only become aware of it when we actually make it an object, when we see it, that it's operating there. So and that's the thing that I find odd and interesting about. about so social neuroscience is really helping us understand what where morality comes from. And mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's been very useful is John Haidt's model of um, moral intuitions, which he's been able to demonstrate underpin some of our political differences, and but also underpin some of our um, profound misunderstandings of one another around morality. In other words, he's done this research that shows that um, many people share to some greater or lesser extent five moral intuitions. One is don't hurt other people. Second is uh, be naive, share, uh, be fair. Uh, then uh, respect the in-group and um, you know uh, do things for the in-group you wouldn't do for the out-group. Uh, respect authority and, um, and respect the sacred. So those final three to mm -hmm. enlightenment years, this is where the enlightenment civ comes in, enlightenment mm -hmm. values. The yeah. final three sound like immorality to people who have enlightenment values, right? So nepotism, racism, nationalism, respecting the in-group, that sounds like immorality. And respecting authority instead of questioning authority sounds like immorality. And um, letting the sacred trump individual freedom or reason sounds like immorality to many of us. Now, the first three, the first two, uh, fairness and kindness, are both... Uh, things that we all share to some greater or lesser extent, but the final three are conservative virtues and, uh, and, and are deeply, deeply rooted in, for instance, the amygdala. I mean, we can put people in fMRI scanners and show that um, if you ask people questions that touch on those final three kinds of moral intuitions, that they're, well, all five of them, you know, their amygdala lights up. The difference is that those of us who have enlightenment virtues and strong neocortical uh, control are able to tell our amygdala to shut up. You know, you see a woman in a hijab and your yuck factor goes off um, and then you, your frontal cortex and your mindfulness practice kicks in and says, oh, yeah, I, I'm noticing some disgust and that's not appropriate because hijabs are not a disgusting thing. And so you just have to tell your amygdala to shut up. And those who are, you know, Trump supporters, their amygdala screams at them and they say, hell yeah, <laughs> get that hijab off. Um, so... We have to understand that there's a you know fundamental monkey brain aspect that's bubbling up into our politics and into our moral uh, thinking, and to the degree that we can use yes mindfulness practice to uh, get better control over some of those impulses, but also uh, it turns out that certain kinds of drugs um, help us with those impulses. Maybe certain kinds of neurotechnologies in the future will help us with them as well. 
Okay, that's interesting. So, um, you know, so you're talking about these moral intuitions and the last three being around, yeah, respecting the in-group, the this authority, the sacred, um, and how those are kind of deeply built into our psyches. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, so, so one thing that comes to mind when you share that is, you know, that makes sense to me. You know, it seems clear that we do have the tendency toward those things. And, you know, I, I can, like you said, even for someone who says those things are immoral, um, you know, well, okay, let's actually look at the people who say that. And, you know, I know a lot of people who, you know, for them, the, the, the in-group they respect is the group of people um, who, all, who, who all believe that we're all part of the in-group. You know, yeah, right. and you know the sense of uh, you know the authority respect is is the authority of people to question authority. Right. You know, and the sacredness we respect is the sacredness you know about there being you know no nothing sacred or that you know that that the idea of sacredness is is, is itself you know um, to, to question that is 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 a sacred thing and to you know to think that things are you know maybe just material reality is is sacred so i and i can see that even operating amongst people that would disagree um, with those things well it's It's a very buddhist thing to to point out that attachment and dualism can be very very subtle even attachment to non-attachment even you know the dualism of dualism and non-dualism etc etc Right, and so okay, so so this this leads me to the question: you know, if we if we start to kind of um, try to reprogram some of those basic moral intuitions, you know, which um, have gotten us here, uh, what are the ethical implications of that? Because um, th- at least some part of me wants to say, well, wait a second, James, like these things may be important. Um, in a fundamental way to the evolution of life. <laughs> and what if, what if we're fucking tampering with these things, we actually start breaking some of the kind of what appear to be bad things, but in reality are like necessary, you know, necessary paradoxes that drive life to continue adapting and, you know, thinking that it's worth doing this whole craziness. Well, that is, in fact, John Haidt's argument, why he says that he's not a liberal anymore, is that um, he thinks liberals don't appreciate the kind of sociological necessity of those of respect for authority, respect for in-groups, and, and respect for sacred symbols. Um, now, I can understand that as a sociological argument, but I think it can also be argued with sociologically. I mean, I, I think it goes deeper than sociology. I think it's it's actually part of our brain structure and our genes um, as mammals. But sociologically, I think um, it's clear that we can do a lot of things. Uh, you know, we can we can have forms of, of freedom and tolerance and, and ambiguity today that would have been fatal for hunter-gatherer tribes or, you know, small peasant groups or whatever. Um, and, and that's because we are growing in our capacity beyond the, the demands of our ancestors. So it's, in sociology, we talk about organic and mechanical solidarity. And the idea is that um, you can uh, have, if you're a hunter-gatherer tribe, you all have to basically believe in the same thing or else you're not going to get anything done and, and you probably die. But in a big complex industrial society like ours, um, none of us could survive long uh, without the rest of us. And so we don't have to all believe the same thing anymore. All we have to do is cooperate in systems of exchange and, and political systems that can be very tolerant and minimalist 
Um, uh, they still, we still have to have some basic agreements like who's alive and who's dead, and which is why debates like abortion get so complicated. And we have to agree that democracy is the way to solve uh, some of these questions. And that's why, you know, groups like uh, Islamic terrorism becomes so complicated. You know, when, when is it appropriate to lock people up when they disagree with democracy as a basic idea? Um, but we don't have to agree about everything else. I don't know if that's what I, I'm kind of riffing on, yeah, <laughs> on yeah. that issue. But yeah, I mean, John Hyde, I, I don't like the way that he's interpreted us. He, he wouldn't have framed us as the way that I did. Uh, he thinks that you know, liberals are tone deaf, that we need to um, listen to those other moral intuitions. I think uh, liberals, um, who, people who, who, aren't, who are trying not to run their moral intuitions on those last three, um, that that's the strength of, of our modern brain and our modern politics, that we can get past uh, telling people that they shouldn't do X because it makes us feel disgusted. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's that's interesting. And I, you know, I, I don't know that I, I did just, I did just vote in the Democratic primary this morning, but I, I don't know that I consider myself a liberal, which is interesting. Um, and so I, I, I kind of, in this conversation where I tend to, where I tend to go is thinking, well, I think, you know, these things, we actually delude ourselves. you know, even as liberals, we, we delude ourselves into thinking that we have transcended them or that we are transcending them, but we're really using the same operating system. And, uh, in, in some ways it might be worse to, to, to be delusional about that. Um, <laughs> well, it's true. Um, I mean, I, you know, I have sacred symbols too. I mean, I, well, I'm a Buddhist, so I have a shrine and, but I also have, you know, you know, Martin Luther King, and you know, you you show me certain kinds of images, and and I'll cry in the same way that somebody who gets upset mm-hmm. about burning a flag would. I understand that point. Um, I I think, yeah, I mean, that's the complexity of it is that uh, it may be that um, the liberal uh, liberalism is is self delusional in some way. I mean, I think it's clearer in, in other respects. I mean, you really can you can make people be more conservative and um, in relatively simple ways. If you can, if you put a bad smell in a room or you put some jam on the handle of a door, when people walk into a lab, they will have evince more conservative attitudes, harsher views towards the punishment of criminals. <laughs> your, your neurologically, how twitchy your amygdala is, is a clear uh, predictor of how conservative and liberal you're going to be. Uh, people are more conservative when they get drunk because then their frontal cortex doesn't tell their amygdala to shut up as easily. There's all kinds of neurological evidence that supports the idea that uh, liberalism in the, this political sense um, is related to a strong frontal cortex and a weak amygdala. So, I mean, I think that there is some support for this model, but I, you're right. There is some complexity to it as well. Yeah. And, you know, even as I, you know, I think the thing I appreciate about the liberal well, there's not one liberal <laughs> um, approach, but you know, it's it's in a sense there's a redefinition going on of of like who we consider the in group and and where we place authority and what we consider sacred or not sacred. You know, there is a almost like a broadening uh, or a, you know an expansion of those ideas, or in the case of authority, a kind of decentering um, you know of authority and like a. Re, uh, you know, a, a sort of distribution of authority across, you know, d- democracy, distri- distributing authority across the many instead of in the hands of, you know, um, small groups. So, I mean, in that sense, like those seem like very, uh, to expand the notion of what those, to what we are respecting, um, as opposed to just saying, like being, you know, almost like 
teenagers who are just like, I'm not going to respect anything. <laughs> um, you know, that, that could be like maybe another, that'd be another way I'd look at that. It's like, we're, we're actually learning to respect something broader and deeper and more, you know, more inclusive. Um, well, there, yeah, there's this debate about what are the functional requirements uh, psychologically that religion may fulfill and is atheism psychologically, you know, po- is it possible to have an atheistic society that doesn't go nuts and, <laughs> in some ways? And that's a part of Haidt's argument also. Uh, and I do think that there's, you know, there's an aspect of that. I mean, I've, I've often quoted the, uh, the line from the uh, Old Testament, without a vision, the people perish. I think people do need, um, right. we need a reason to get out of bed in the morning, basically. You know? <laughs> I, right, I, right. The thing that first drove me to Buddhism when I was 15, I was smoking pot and I would lie in bed and think, you know, I'm just atoms floating in the universe. There's no good and bad. If I, you know, it's like L'Etranger, the stranger by Camus, you know, if I just went and killed somebody, it would absolutely be meaningless. There would be no, you know, there's nothing meaningful in the world. And that's a terrible place to be. You know, <laughs> it's a place of, that can lead to depression and drug abuse and so forth. And Buddhism came along at the right moment and said, look, you can have that perspective. And still have something that you do with your life. You know, that still you can still uh, believe that everything is in from one perspective fine, and that on the other hand you still have a project. And um, and that was the right message at the right time for me. And, and it's just gotten more complicated over time. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was reading um, you know a book by uh, this uh, internet philosopher, Swedish guy named Alexander Bard, um, called uh, Synthism: Cre- Creating God in the Internet Age. And he, he talks about some of these same themes and and how, in a sense, like we live in a period of time that because the grand narratives, the idea that we can find universal narratives that apply to everyone have been so broken you know, down, that notion for so many people, um, that we live in an age of hyper cynicism, you know, where it's like, and, and I guess what you're describing is a kind of nihilism, like hyper nihilism too, where, you know, the, because we can't find a meaning that we all agree on or that is true for everyone, you know, there is nothing that is true and there is nothing meaningful. And we are just like atoms floating. Well, you know, even to say we're atoms floating in the universe has a certain kind of underlying meaning and philosophical kind of assumption. But you know what I, where he goes with that is quite interesting because he sort of suggests that, you know, we've, we've, we've killed the idea, you know, with Nietzsche of God being this, uh, ontologically existing reality that existed prior to us. Um, we, you know, with modernity, we've sort of killed that notion, but but we've lost uh, we've lost God, and, and and his solution is to create God as a as a vision in the future that we are moving toward. Um, and in some ways, I hear that like similar kind of notion in what you're saying about uh, you know the technological augmentation. It's like we have this vision of what we could be as human beings that it, it goes beyond our current programming and our current you know uh, limitations as biological creatures. And in a sense, like we're we're moving toward that vision, or or you know that, that there's that there's something inherently good about moving toward that vision. Inherently good. That, 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 that's the rub. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, right. I can't speak about these things without, you know, if I'm going to take a position, I have to say it's there's something inherently good about it. Right. I mean, the, the thing that I like about the Four Noble Truths is you start with something that's relatively inarguable, that there's something dissatisfactory about your condition. 
and then you diagnose where it comes from, and then you work on trying to overcome that thing. And I think, you know, that's a different argument than saying that there's an inherent good or bad way to be in the world. You know, if you turn over the universe inscribed on the bottom or the, you know, the tenfold path or something, that's not the argument. The argument is, look, just have a conversation with someone and talk to them about their life. And you can eventually get to the point where they acknowledge that they have some kind of suffering and and that that suffering comes from attachment. So, you know, that kind of diagnostic and relational approach, I think, is a different argument than the deontological one. Now, for for peasants, you need deontology. And for a lot of people, because their brain can't handle the complexity of of, of true ambiguity and openness to the possibility that you need to say, you know, here's the, here are the 10 things that you absolutely should never do. And here are the 10 things you absolutely should do. And if you do, if you break these rules, you're going to hell forever. Peasants need that. Buddhist peasants needed it. Catholic peasants needed it. But we don't need that necessarily anymore. Now, some people still go back to it. That's the, the ongoing appeal of fundamentalism is that they freak out at the end of the, the, the lack of certainty that, modernity offers. But I think we can actually transcend that and, and move to a more sophisticated uh, way of understanding the world. And, it, and the, the deontological piece, you know, as you're describing it and, you know, where, where I went with that of like, you know, there's something inherently good. It's, it, there, there do seem to be though, like from a, from a subjective point of view, there, there are these periods where I've experienced very clearly, and I think I've seen many, many people around me doing the same, of the something just seems right. You know, there's a, you know, you use the term moral intuition. There's something seems right, and it does feel inherently good. Um, and there's something about that, you know, that when we follow it, it can have dire consequences, uh, you know, going back to consequentialism. And it may not be based on the logic of, you know, kind of, looking at all the situations and trying to kind of rationally figure out, you know, what's the most optimal solution to like reduce suffering or increase happiness or whatever. And, and yet like, you know, it seems like this is where the whole, those three, you know, different approaches you mentioned to me, like they all seem to be problematic in some way, you know, as I think about them, because how many times have, you know, have you and have I found ourselves trying to figure out a problem, you know, from like a, like a, um, kind of a, a virtue perspective, you know, trying to like kind of weigh all the things and use a model like, like, you know, the four noble truths to determine, you know, how should we act when, you know, the moral intuition is there from the beginning and we may not understand why it, 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 that action or that feeling of like, this is right is true. And yet, you know, if we follow through with it, we notice like, oh, actually, wow, that ended up being the thing that, you know, um, and then this is where it gets tricky, but like that it ended up being the thing that most needed to happen, at least from, from my limited vantage point. Um, you know, to, to me, there's something about, you know, respecting that intuition too, or not getting bogged down and trying to figure things out and then getting, you know, paralyzed and not being able to take action. So I think Western Buddhists uh, in the meditation traditions, we have a weakness for intuitionist moral approaches because we think... Mm-hmm. If you just stop all that thinking and just, you know, open yourself, open your heart to the, the situation that it'll become obvious what you do. Well, maybe, but, you know, that's, I don't think that that's a true, I, I don't think that kind of anti-intellectualism is really the way to understand the Buddhist tradition, because there's a lot of intellectual stuff in the Buddhist tradition, a lot right. of stuff about how to 
have a truly sophisticated thinking mind that you also apply to your life. Um, you know, right understanding is the basis of the, the start of the, the Eightfold Path. And right understanding isn't just turning off your thinking mind. It's having a truly sophisticated mind. So in moral theory and in moral social neuroscience now, um, there, there is this same debate about um, is it all about empathy? Uh, does, does, know it, does teaching anybody ethical theory in the first place do anything for anybody? And you know, there's this wonderful uh, studies. There's the most stolen books out of academic libraries are books about ethics. Um, and it's because, you know, yeah, you teach people ethical theory and the first thing that they understand is how to rationalize anything. Um, you know, and yeah, there, there's something to that, uh, that we're basically, most of us are working backwards from our intuitions and just using intellectual models to rationalize our intuitions. Um, but on the other hand, if you can really get into it and have a dialogue with yourself, um, you can work up a moral ladder of, of moral reasoning like Kohlberg showed us that, you know, that, if, that a child can basically explain to you why what they want is what's right. And they have no idea what you're talking about when you say, well, there's a social contract and we all have to do X, Y, and Z. And there's like, forget that. What I want is what's right. Um, and then eventually they understand the social contract, but they may not understand uh, the right of individuals to um, abstain from a social contract and have a right of conscience. And so, you know, they may be kind of hardliners about uh, right. the uh, post-conventional morality. Exactly. All of that. And so I think that shows us that there is a, a path of moral sophistication that we can engage in uh, and develop in ourselves, our children, um, that is not simply intuitionist. It's not simply... Uh, turning off your brain and letting your heart speak. Yeah, of course, and and I would never argue for that as a as an ultimate way of being. Just just that you know, just that you know, any one of those three that you mentioned, when people adhere to them fully, they are in some way they they really miss out something else. Like that, there's something that in each of those approaches to ethics that seems to, they, they seem to reveal something because it's the deontological that gives the inner feeling of rightness that makes it possible to do something that you might die for like you i, mean, I don't see someone dying you know for some sort of rationalized thing that they don't also feel is inherently right you know like oh yeah that's a great idea and i've, I've worked out the proof for it but if you don't really feel like it's right and you really feel like it's like fundamentally right like are you you know that that whole proof is you're going to throw that away and run the other way when it comes down to making a hard ass decision well um, would it would it be a bad world if none of us really felt the need to fight and die for our beliefs. I mean, I'm not uh, sure. If, if if one group decided that they were willing to do that, then it could be a totally terrible world if yes. none of us fought back. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I'm um, not, I have a hard time when I've put myself in those situations, whether I would have ever fought and died. You know, what if I was fighting the Third Reich, yeah, I, I probably would have felt pretty good about that you know dying in that situation i think most people don't actually die for ideas they die for their comrades and their families mm. and because they would look like a pussy if they didn't um so i don't know but i uh i think more to the point today is who are we willing to kill uh, rather than are we willing ourselves to die very few of us are going to be in the martial uh virtue situation of wanting to die for our, our beliefs but many of us are in the situation of trying to decide who to kill 
Right, and, and politically, who to who to back, and who you know, what sort of things to support that are, that have those implications. Since we have, you know, we live in such a powerful society. Yeah. Most of us that are able to hear this podcast, at least. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating. Well, hey, James, I I, I know we haven't necessarily arrived anywhere in this, but, <laughs> um, uh, but I I really appreciate you know exploring some of these aspects, and I hope that you know folks that are tuning in, you know, will um, take some of these ideas and you know, incorporate them into their own contemplations about, um, ethics. And I, I did want to also mention something that you've, um, been, been part of and that have, you've helped kind of form, which is what's called the techno progressive declaration. Um, and we'll, we'll link to that in the, um, in the show notes, but I was wondering if you could just maybe say a little bit about that, because I, I want to make sure people can find a little bit more about your thinking here and, and, and sort of dive into it. So, um, Within the transhumanist and futurist circles, there's a huge diversity of political ideas. And over the last 10 years, the term techno-progressive has emerged as one of the ways to frame a left-of-center approach to these futurist and transhumanist ideas. Um, And the techno-progressive declaration, we um, uh, drafted that 18 months ago in Paris of Uh, an international group of what I would have called in my old lefty days an international tendency, not yet a party, but but an ideological tendency. We we got together and um, said these are the the core kind of statements of what we think a a techno-progressive politics would be about. And it's about things like how uh, futurists and transhumanists can relate to various social movements, reproductive rights and disability and so forth, um, about technological unemployment and basic income, about uh, catastrophic risks that are emergent from various technologies. And um, and I think it's important that there be um, more uh, explicit uh, uh, pushback against the right-wing hegemony within the futurist and, and t- transhumanist communities. I mean, Peter Thiel, uh, this billionaire, he's uh, been a supporter of the Ron and Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, and he's the principal philanthropist who funds transhumanist organizations. And that has an effect, you know, it has a it has a, an ideological self-censorship effect on the part of a lot of people when the majority of us in the, in the futurist community are on the left. And, um, and so we've been pushing back and this, this declaration was part of that. Okay. Awesome. You know, thanks for sharing that. And I hope uh, folks will be able to, to learn a little bit more about that. And it's, it's, it's pretty cool to, at least for me, because I, I used to identify as a transhumanist uh, some <laughs> a long time ago. You still but, are. Uh, in some ways, maybe um, tra- transhumanist inspired or influenced, but um, you know, it's it's it is interesting to see that there are, of course, different political views inspiring uh, different kinds of projects and movements within that larger camp, which is itself its own kind of sub you know culture of of people thinking in a certain way about technology and. Um, yeah, I mean, and for many geeks, we are part of that, uh, at least on the fringes of it, because there is a sort of general tech positiveness um, to the to geek culture. So, uh, yeah, really interesting stuff you're doing. And th- thanks again for taking the time to, to have this chat. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime.
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.